Good morning again, everyone. It's a privilege to worship alongside each one of you this morning. We're going to continue our uh, series, Encounters with Jesus, by looking at the passage that Bob just read for us. But let's take a few moments uh, before we do and pray. Father, I do pray that, again, you would meet us here this morning. I pray that you would take steps towards us, even if we're unwilling to take steps towards you. If we're unable to take steps towards you, if we are ignorant of how even to begin, I pray that you would walk towards us with open arms, that you would instruct us in how to put one foot in front of the other. We come in here this morning from so many different places. We bring all sorts of belief systems, all sorts of disappointments. Some of us come in here feeling dejected and depressed. Others of us are surprised by joy, surprised by how life has turned out for us. Father, whether we're skeptical or assured, whether we're depressed or on cloud nine, I pray that you would meet us in a way that makes sense to us, in a way that changes us. And as we look at this passage, I pray, Father, that you would help us to see both our failures and our triumphs through the lens of your grace. We pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So throughout this series, we've been taking a couple of vignettes of people that are encountering Jesus and asking, what is it like to encounter Jesus? What is it like to meet him? What kinds of things seem to be important to him? What kind of community is he trying to, to create through his ministry? And what does he want from those of us who know him, who have encountered him in some real way? What does he expect that we will be doing with our lives? What's strange is you go through the Gospels, you see oftentimes some of the most heavy passages, some of the most uh, significant passages, Jesus is kind of on the edge. Jesus is not revealing exactly what he wants. Sometimes people don't even recognize who he is. Those people like Peter and these disciples who know him, who have encountered him even after his resurrection, don't see him. And he doesn't make it plain exactly what he wants and what he expects from them. There's a number of places throughout the Gospels where he's making a huge point, and yet the first, at first people don't recognize him. Now, I don't really like telling people that I'm a minister because it sort of is a conversation stopper or at least a changer. But what I do enjoy is after I've talked to someone for a while and I've maybe just met them, and we've talked for five, maybe ten minutes, and then they find out that I'm a minister. I really enjoy seeing the look on their faces because they try to pay attention, but I, I know that look, and I can see in the back of their brain, they're reviewing their conversation to see if they've made any off-color jokes or if they've dropped any bad words into the conversation, and inevitably, if they have, they start apologizing. And so I try to then, you know, say something off-color so that they kind of get, get that I don't really care about that. But People in Portland are exceedingly gracious to me when they find out that I'm a minister because it's almost like they've discovered a leprechaun or something. You do, you do what? <laughs> I've never heard of that. What, is, what, what job is that? You get paid for that? But you see, the conversation does change. It is different. No matter what their initial impression was, the conversation changes after they find out I'm a minister or a man of the cloth or a priest, however they assign value to my job. And so I try to refrain from letting them know that 
in any way possible because I want to see them in real life. I want to know what they're like before they find out who I am and what I do for a living. I want to see who they really are in their everyday, ordinary life. Now, Jesus walks up on people throughout the Gospels doing very ordinary stuff, going about their everyday, mundane, routine life. And these disciples, he walks up on them, and what are they doing? They're fishing. And if we go with the traditional chronology of this is chapter 21, and it takes place after chapter 20, it's after the resurrection, it's after these disciples have already seen Jesus raised from the dead, or at least have witnessed his post-resurrection body. If we're to go with that traditional chronology, then this is a post-resurrection meeting with a few of his key disciples, those that are supposed to carry out his mission. And it seems exceedingly strange that these guys are out fishing, that they've just kind of gone back to work. After the enormous monumental events that happened in Jerusalem, these guys leave and they go back to work. They start fishing again. They've seen him raised from the dead. They've been part of this whole new religious movement, which is supposed to turn the world upside down. And they've apparently returned to work. Well, we need to see, first of all, in this passage that Jesus is a Savior who meets us in our everyday life and in our everyday need. He meets us in the ordinary. Jesus walks up to his key disciples and he says, hey, how's the fishing going? Now, John gives more space in his gospel than any of the other three gospel writers to the post-resurrection life of Jesus. Mark gives nothing. Zero verses. Matthew gives a handful, and Luke a few more. But John gives us 45 verses. He gives us over a chapter and a half of Jesus post-Easter. Now, it's more strange to me to think about what John includes in the post-Easter story of Jesus rather than the fact that those other three are so thin. Look at what he gives us. He gives us a chapter and a half of the post-Easter Jesus, and he gives us a picture of Jesus helping his friends catch some fish and then tending a campfire on the beach. How much more ordinary could it be? How much more lacking in significance? You have so much drama that's leading up to Easter. This is supposed to be the event that will change history, and yet the one gospel writer who decides to give the most space to Jesus after the resurrection has him on this isolated stretch of beach, frying fish and cooking biscuits and having a conversation with these guys who have just gotten off work. Is this what life looks like in the world after Easter? We get no more parables, no more sermons, no more walking on water, no more opening a blind person's eyes. Instead, How's the fishing going? Did you catch anything? Come onto shore and have breakfast with me. Why wasn't Jesus anywhere else but on that beach? Why wasn't he out curing cancer, healing the blind, releasing prisoners? Why does John choose to capture for us this seemingly insignificant event? Jesus does work a miracle here, but it's pretty unspectacular. Earlier in the book, 
he takes a couple of fish and a few pieces of bread, and he manages to feed 5,000 or more. Likely that those are just the males. So he feeds thousands of people. But here he feeds seven. Seven people with 153 pieces of fish. And so it's really no wonder that scholars through the centuries have tried to figure out what's the symbolic value of 153. There's got to be some kind of symbolism, some hidden meaning in what Jesus is saying. And even the great St. Augustine tries to assign this spectacular meaning by adding up the numbers of 153 and then doing a little mathematic judo to say that it's really a picture of the gospel and the law. But attempts to spruce up this narrative end up sort of ruining it. Because who do we need Jesus to be for us? Don't we need to see Jesus in exactly the everyday set of circumstances that that John gives us? Don't we need a Jesus, a Savior, a King of the world who meets us in a home that's too messy to invite our neighbors over? Don't we need a Savior who meets us in our stack of resumes that we wonder if anyone will ever even look at? Don't we need Jesus to meet us while we're wondering that if our baby needs one more diaper change today, we might just lose it? Don't we need Jesus, the King of the world, to meet us in those circumstances? Because isn't that where you and I live life? It may not be that exciting, but Jesus is a God who wants to meet us in the kitchen amid the pots and the pans, as Teresa of, Teresa of Avila put it in the 1500s. We need a Savior who accompanies us in our everyday routine journey. We need a Savior who doesn't begrudge us of needing Him in very ordinary circumstances, where we lift up things to Him that feel very significant to us, but in the big scheme of things, are fairly minor. We need a Savior who's going to not begrudge us for caring so much about that, that that's what we choose to pray about that day. We need a God whose resurrection matters to the mundane. And we'll encounter Jesus insofar as those are the real places that we seek to meet Him. It's in the ordinary, the mundane, the very usual places Certainly, some of us have these mountaintop experiences. We have conversion stories that can hold an audience captive. But most of us are just going along with our lives. And Jesus shows up in our workplace. He shows up when we're writing a resume. He shows up when we're changing a diaper, when we're seeking to love our spouse and seeking not to strangle our children. That was a joke. No one? I guess I'm the only one. We'll encounter Jesus when we realize our very ordinary need for grace. And we'll come to Jesus, we'll encounter Jesus when we see him, see that he's a savior who makes breakfast for failures. This episode where Jesus calls from the shore to his disciples fishing has happened before in the gospel narratives, not in John, but in Luke's gospel. And so there, there's a great deal of discussion, have the gospel writers dischronologize this event to suit their theological purposes. And that, that may be, in fact, true. There's nothing wrong with that. But the point that we need to see is that what is different about these two things, the setting is very much the same, 
But Peter's response is completely different. In Luke 5, we have Jesus on the shore calling out to his disciples in a boat. And a miraculous catch of fish. But Peter's response is totally different. When Peter recognizes Jesus on this other occasion, what does he do? He falls on his face and he says, Depart from me because I'm a sinful man. But here, when Simon realizes, but when John says, It's the Lord, it's the Lord, Peter says, It's the Lord, and he jumps out of the boat and he swims toward him. He had failed Jesus in a monumental way. He denied him three times, and yet he leaps in the water and swims toward Jesus when he figures out who he is. Peter knows now in John 21, like he didn't know in Luke 5, that Jesus was one who loves failures. Peter saw himself as a loved failure, and it changed his relationship. It changed his response to Jesus. Was he wrong in the first place? Did he misunderstand anything? No, but he didn't understand everything fully. He didn't misunderstand, but he didn't have the complete picture of who Jesus is. In Luke, he sees him perform this enormous miracle, and it dawns on him that he's in the presence of royalty, that he's in the presence of divine activity. There's something special about this person, Jesus. And he cowers. He cowers. Now, even though in, that we live in more of a liberal democracy, we understand, we have a vague understanding of this sort of reverence, this awe, this respect that we give, that we assign to people that have a different cultural standing, a different cultural power. No matter what you think of a particular president, if he walks into the room, everyone does this. Everyone checks what they're wearing. Everyone says, yes, sir, Mr. President. Have a nice day, Mr. President. We afford that person a certain intimidating status that even if you disagree with their policies vehemently, if you meet them, you're going to stand at attention. You're going to make sure your kids are behaving themselves and are quiet. You're going to nod your head and shake, and you're going to be very formal. Peter realizes that someone unlike him has walked into the room, so to speak. Peter knows, though he doesn't know the full picture of who Jesus is at this point in the narrative in Luke, he knows there's something special, that he's encountering divine activity, that he is encountering the agency of God. And he recognizes this vast difference between Jesus and himself, and he begins to feel exposed. He begins to feel uncomfortable because he begins to feel like a fraud. And he cowers, and he covers his head, and he says, away from me because I am a sinful man. You know, this is as far as many of us get in our Christian journey. In and of, I, in and of myself, I'm not fit to stand before God. He's holy, and I'm not. And so in subtle and not-so-subtle ways, we begin to avoid Him. We live a life cowering in fear because we think God is constantly disappointed in us. God is constantly angry with us. God is constantly just 
allowing us to live, barely tolerating us. Because, see, we don't have the the counterbalance of the gospel. Some of us may even prefer God this way because, you see, his law and his rules and his anger are much more understandable and a lot more manageable than is his grace. And it's as far as many of us get in exploring Christianity, too, because we think, well, I'm hard enough on myself. I break my own rules already. Why would I invite God into the inner places and the inner recesses of my heart? Why do I want someone else looking in? Why do I want a God who presumably piles on? Peter's response isn't wrong. It's just incomplete. He's seen the power of God, but he hasn't yet grasped the full mercy of God. He sees Jesus rightly as one who administers this awesome power, and yet he hasn't yet experienced him as the suffering servant who comes to offer forgiveness to failures. And so what does Peter do? He moves away from Jesus rather than towards him. If Jesus is this stupendously powerful, I'm just a lowly fisherman and a sinner to boot. I don't have anything to do being around this sort of power. It scares him. What about you? Are you moving towards Jesus? Are you moving away? If your understanding of God makes you cower and run, makes you wonder if you have any business in his presence. If he truly saw all of you, he would be so disappointed. Well, then you know the impossibly holy God, but not the suffering servant who goes to the cross for you, who makes a breakfast on a beach for failures. And if this is you, this is, you're, you're still in prison. And the one thing that people in prison can't abide is other people getting out of prison for free. And so if you're in prison and you, someone wrongs you, if someone makes a different lifestyle choice than you think is valid, if someone holds different theological views than you, you'll never be comfortable giving them grace unless they change. Because if they knew God like you do, they would cower in, in fear and run away. And you can't abide someone who doesn't, is not imprisoned like you are getting a free pass. But you see, those who see Jesus on a beach making breakfast for failures move toward him. These are the ones who don't pretend that they can hide their failures to Jesus. And in a strange way, they come to learn that they don't even want to. They don't want to hide from Jesus anymore because they see their failures as the only way to truly encounter the fullness of Jesus. These are the people that in the midst of failure don't immediately ask, how do I rectify this? How do I change this? How do I get out of this situation? All of us have that instinct. It's not wrong. We want our lives to go well. We want life to be comfortable. But as Americans, we're so quick to want to fix it when something goes wrong. Those of us who have encountered not only the impossibly holy God, but the suffering servant who makes breakfast for failures, don't, don't, they don't just ask in a difficult situation, how do I change this 
but they say, what is God saying to me in this? What is he trying to tell me about who he is and about who I am? How do I see his grace at work in this situation? You see, we're so quick to think of failure and struggle as something to be utterly avoided. They're a roadblock to our success. And so we think when depression comes, when doubt comes, when discontentment comes, we see these only as obstacles to overcome rather than as opportunities to exploit. We become very hostile towards these sort of struggles in our own life and towards the struggles in other people's lives. We don't see them as spiritual opportunities. And part of this is because what Peter is having to do, deal with here and what anyone who encounters Jesus is we are dealing with the loss of ego, the loss of the false self. Thomas Merton was a 20th century monk and writer, very perceptive about this, and he says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all, the ones that we cherish about ourselves. This is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. And to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life. And such a, self, such a self cannot help but be an illusion. For most of the people in the world, there's no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs. But it cannot exist. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what we call a life of sin. As we say over and over here at InTown, that, that sin is not primarily about what you do and you don't do. It's not primarily about wrong behavior that God wants to correct in your life. And it certainly isn't those things that God is mad at you about. Sin is disintegration. Sin is living out of this false self. It's living a lie. It's living a life that is attempting to do life without God. And so Jesus, far from wanting to Make sure you get what's coming to you. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be whole. He wants you to be integrated again. He wants you to more and more live out of your true self rather than your false self. And this is what Peter has understood now. Because, see, what's happened since Luke 5 now to John 21 is that he hasn't just seen Jesus do miracles but he's seen Jesus forgive him of the most blatant, most egregious sin that anyone could imagine. And Jesus makes breakfast for him and invites him in for a meal. Here's how you know that you begin to get this, that you begin to live with the two sides of Jesus in tension and in alignment. It's when others feel that they can run to you. When others feel that you're a safe place for them to work through issues. When other people have something they're wrestling with and know that they can share with you without the fear of reprisal, without the fear of you sharing it with others, without the fear of 
the raised eyebrow. When people are hurting and they invite you in because you feel safe, that's a good sign that you've come to Jesus' breakfast as a failure. This is the theology of of patience and mercy. Is that the theology that, that is residing in you? Is that the theology that we celebrate as a church? And then also, do people not only run to you, but what is Jesus getting at with Peter? Do you run to others to care for them, to love them, to shepherd them? Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Then tend to my sheep. You see, if you love Jesus, then you're compelled then to show that love to others. And Jesus is lining those two things up, not as meritorious of the other, but as consequential, as if you love Jesus, then you will. But let's let's look finally at this kind of interchange that Jesus has with Peter, because it's it's fascinating and it's spine-tingling, because I think growing up in the church, I've heard this taught so many times as sort of, here's what Peter has left to do that he doesn't quite love Jesus enough. And so Jesus is trying to get him to see that. But I think something else is going on here. Twice Jesus asked Peter, do you agape me? Agape is this holistic, covenantal, sacrificial love. It's the height of love. And twice Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know I phile you, which is this very real love, but it's a, a slightly different category. Okay, it's more friendship. Finally, though, in round three, Jesus picks up Peter's choice of words to inquire. Peter, do you love me? Do you feel me? He's taken Peter's words now and asking, do you love me in that way? And we're told that Peter was sad because on the third time, Jesus asked him this. Well, is Jesus rubbing it in? Is Jesus trying to make the point and is John trying to make the point that Peter understands Jesus, but not quite yet, because he doesn't fully love him. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. No, see, Peter denied him three times, and Jesus is asking him this question three times to say that my mercy runs all the way to the bottom of your betrayal. All the way. Peter keeps answering, phile. I phile you, Jesus. More of a friendly love. But see, there's no real indication in the text that there's condemnation in this. You should love Jesus a whole lot more, Peter, because look at what you've been through. That's not what's going on. Instead, it's Peter's admission that he was loving Jesus as best he could. At that point, Peter was just saying, you know, it doesn't rise to the level of this sacrificial, this hyper-confident word, agape. And how comforting it is to see Jesus not condemn him, but accept him, invite him to a breakfast. He knows already what Peter, Peter indicates. You know already how I love you. And yet, Jesus, knowing that, invites him to a breakfast because Jesus is the Savior who makes, makes breakfast for failures. Jesus accepts Peter as he is, warts 
and foibles and feet of clay and all. And He still loves him and forgives him and restores him. Friends, what I want you to get, and I think what John wants you to get, is that Jesus is making a meal for all of us. And He's inviting all of us to this meal. And it's a feast, not of those who are triumphant, not for those who have it all together, not for those who know all the answers theologically, but it's a feast for failures. It's a feast for all of us who know our need and bring that need to Jesus. So will you come and eat of that meal? We'll do so in just a moment. Let's pray, and then we'll confess our faith and come to the table. Lord Jesus, not everything about us is failure. Not everything about us is wrong. And Lord, I pray that you would give us that confidence to know that even in our sin, even in our brokenness, that you have made us in your image and you delight in us. But Lord, I pray that we would take that extra step, that confidence that comes in knowing that, that you are a loving God in your nature, that we would take hold of the grace, that we would take hold of your goodness, that we would take hold of your full forgiveness for everything about us that runs contrary to you. And there is so very much. There is so much sin. There is so much repression of our sin. There is so much hiding. Father, help us to come out into the light. Exposure is difficult. Lord, I pray that at the edge of that exposure, at the edge of fear, that we would see your gospel light, that we would see not only your enormous holiness, but also your tender mercy. Lord, let us take hold of that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.